You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, hey, you're now listening to a very special episode of Fly on the Call for many reasons. Today's guest is Jesse Cannon, who's truly a jack of all trades. Producing some of your favorite records, podcasting about music and politics, authoring two essential books for musicians, and teaching bands to go from zero to 10,000 fans through his YouTube channel are just a few of the highlights. I'll let him give the full rundown at the start of the interview, but before we get there, I have a couple of cool surprises for you. First off, to celebrate passing the 500 follower mark on Twitter, I'm doing a big giveaway. I've put together three prize packs with merch from past guests, as well as some Fly on the Call swag for you to win. This includes vinyl, t-shirts, and more from The Wonder Years, Origami Angel, Pentimento, and Grey Matter. The full breakdown can be found in the giveaway posts on Twitter and Instagram, which are linked in the show notes. To enter, all you need to do is quote, tweet, or share the post to your Instagram stories with the words, please consider donating to Intransitive AR. Intransitive is a trans-led organization, supporting trans people and building brave spaces to celebrate trans resilience in Arkansas. Since the pandemic, they have redistributed over $21,000 to trans people in emergency situations, facing eviction, homelessness, food insecurity, and or domestic violence. While it's not a requirement of the giveaway, I will be matching donations made to Intransitive. I encourage you to do so if you're financially able. Oh, and everyone who enters will receive a Fly on the Call sticker, pin, and or keychain to boot. And last but not least, I'm so excited to introduce a new Fly on the Call segment called What's the Buzz? Every other week, I will be speaking with music writer Joel Funk about the bands and songs that we can't get out of our heads, with an accompanying Spotify playlist, of course. You may remember Joel from our 2019 year-end roundtable for the in-depth interview I did with him for episode 36. Joel has bylines at The Alternative and Substream, as well as creating the now-defunct 36 Vultures. He has truly impeccable music tastes, as you'll soon learn, and has introduced me to many of the musicians I've talked to for the show. Without further ado, here is the buzz. So the first track we're talking about is Sweet Hibiscus Tea by Penelope Scott. And funny enough, you listeners are going to hear me finding out about Penelope Scott once we get into the actual interview. But I've seen this album described as ragtime punk. And I think that sounds pretty accurate. It's kind of like a, it's almost, I don't know, it's like lo-fi with uh, kind of like bare bones guitar and piano and almost like a echoey sound to her voice i feel like yeah absolutely who described it as ragtime punk uh i think it was just like some random review i saw when i like googled her (laughs) yeah that's sick i love the way that like the way that description sounds for sure because i've just been calling it bedroom punk (laughs) that works too and i mean i don't really understand tiktok but apparently she's like really big on there (laughs) TikTok is wild. Like, it's like brand new stuff that you wouldn't expect to blow up or 17-year-old songs. Like, like Gym Class Heroes are, like, topping the charts again. And I'm like... Interesting. Very interesting. <laughs> and it's also kind of crazy to me that she released two albums last year that are vastly different and both amazing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Junkyard 2, I didn't hear until, I want to say, like, a month ago. But I came across uh, Penelope listening to Beach Bunny Radio on Spotify. So the song reminds me a lot of uh, like the Dresden Dolls for sure. I heard Sweet Hibiscus Tea and I got Girl Anachronism vibes. But uh, and then the next song is a re-release actually of a Will Joseph Cook song called Be Around Me featuring Chloe Moriando. Chloe is somebody that I found out about at the end of last year, she was the opener for the Front Bottoms first virtual champagne jam. And like, I was hooked from the second I heard her start playing. And it's just this really sick, like super upbeat pop song. It's not trying to be anything more than what it is. It's just this like super, super sweet love song. The, the dual vocals are so nice. They play off of each other very well. It's impossible to get out of your head once you hear it. Like, I think I walked around all day today just singing the, the opening line of the song. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Like, I love that vocal trade-off uh, that happens. 
And I feel I feel like it just has like really great kind of like springtime vibe. And I can't quite put my finger on it, but I feel like it has the attitude of like early 2000s, like indie pop. For sure. It, it sort of gives me um, like the hush sound. Like 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 a like if the hush sound tried to do the radio and not uh, not the weird jazz thing they were doing for a little bit. Oh my god! One of my favorite like early concert memories is seeing the Honda Civic tour that was Panic at the Disco headlining, and the openers were Phantom Planet, The Hush Sound, and Motion City soundtrack. What a stacked lineup! It was insane, and I actually I had like one. I signed up for like the Panic of the Disco fan club to have the opportunity to do a meet and greet yeah. and I won it. So like Holy me, me and my sister you. went there and like, it was kind of weird. Like, you know, well, yeah. they were just like, kind of like a signing and then they took a picture and yeah, the super young too. They were like 18 <laughs> at the time. So like, yeah, I mean, I, so I get it. It was like on the, the pre-Allot album cycle. So yeah, that's insane. Uh, the Hush Sound, I think I saw them on the Black Clouds and Underdog store, so it was like the Hush Sound from first to last, <laughs> Hawthorne Heights, the All-American Rejects, uh, and Fall Out Boy. That's quite the lineup. From first to last, I had no business being there, but <laughs> it, was, it was still enjoyable. Yeah, I feel like that was probably like a Fall Out Boy pick. <laughs> oh yeah, that was a Pete Wentz pick, no questions. And then, so up next we got origami angel with their uh, newest track neutrogena specter which is off of their kind of out of nowhere almost uh album that's going to be coming up on april 30th via counterintuitive and to be honest i was kind of thinking they were going to be like taking a little bit of break probably mostly just because they haven't been super active on socials lately but definitely a, a pleasant surprise for me and I definitely wasn't expecting a double album, which yeah. is, it's really interesting to me that they're like specifically labeling it as that. And it makes me really curious, like how this is going to fit into that. Yeah, for sure. Um, the, the fact that it's a double album surprised me. I thought they were going to take a break too, just because of how creative the rollout for uh, Somewhere City was. I was expecting like something along those lines again, but I'm still obviously very excited for a double album. And I'm wondering if, Part of it's going to be this more like this style of the song, which is similar to Somewhere City. And then it may be like the second album or the, the second half of whatever this project ends up being is going to be like a little more experimental, kind of like uh, they had that Pokemon themed EP that came out, Gen 3. And the, the last song was like borderline a chaotic rap song. So I'm just, like, I'm just wondering if they're going to be pushing any more like boundaries like that or if they're going to save those for like, EPs and one-offs. Yeah, I'm definitely really interested to see like the the structure of the album. And I feel like this is kind of like the the cleanest they've sound and and kind of like, you know, a, a very natural progression of the sound at the same time though. Yep. I'm wondering if this is like when the Wonder Years released Passing Through a Spring Door and it was like the closest thing we had to Suburbia off of The Greatest Generation. If this is like here's a song that sounds kind of similar to Somewhere City but like don't get too comfy with this sound. We just want to kind of warm you up a little bit. Yeah, I could see that. I could see that. I, uh, it's funny that you mentioned passing through the screen door because I saw the other day someone posted like a memory, however many years ago it was that that song premiered. And I've like, I have such a vivid memory of that, like premiering on Absolute Punk and crashing Absolutely. the site like 15 minutes beforehand. And then they ended up just throwing it on SoundCloud or Tumblr or something. Yeah, the lead, the lead up to when that song came out and like they had it playing in like reverse, like in a YouTube video for 10 seconds and like just teasing this record before it came out. It was, uh, I don't think I'll ever get a roll out, but I love that much again. I love that album. Yeah, and oh, oh my god, and the drop like from there there into passing through a screen door is like one of my favorite like musical moments. <laughs> a, a perfect record hands down. For sure. <laughs> All right, so I think the next one we're talking about is Hungover Brunch at Tiffany's by Palette Night, uh, which is, I want to say the third single off of their upcoming debut album. And I heard these guys early, like late last year, like early, Jan maybe early January and they're not by any means like reinventing the wheel of what they're doing it's really rippy like bouncy good just indie pop but like listening to it I just I can't get over how how well they like work their like neuroses in the lyrics and it doesn't it doesn't feel like they're doing it just for the sake of doing it right like you could tell this is very much 
a lived in experience. And it's not just uh, talking about being like sad and depressed and drinking your feelings away just for the sake of, oh, I know, I know people are going to relate to this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like there's some really like really cool guitar work on here too. Like it's it's kind of like on par with like Jail Socks for me, who I really love, and I'm so stoked for their debut LP. <laughs> Jail Socks is a band I still I have to get into because I've been obviously seeing the name forever, but it's like I just haven't I don't know I just haven't taken the plunge quite yet. Uh, the four or five songs on the It's Not Forever I think is the name of the EP. Like they're just so good. So up next is. God's Gift to Women by Harmony Woods. Um, Jamie Coletta from No Earbuds was kind of teasing that there's going to be a surprise release at midnight a couple weeks ago. I guess, I think three weeks ago, maybe at this point. And because, I mean, I love pretty much every band she works with. I was like, oh, okay, let me, I guess I'll have to stay up till midnight then to see who it is. And then once I saw it was Harmony Woods, I was like, okay, let's do this. <laughs> Listen to this right now. I ended up like live tweeting it. And it just kept getting better kind of the more I found out about it, like being Barty Strange produced and, you know, the drums on this, this song in particular and the album as a whole are just like so huge. I love them. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is the best that Harmony Woods has like sounded. This, this is what the third full length album from Harmony Woods. And like, this finally feels like they're really coming into their own sound wise. Like they've, they found and they know what their niche is. They know they tell an incredible story and uh, her voice just sounds so fucking solid. The entirety of this, of this record. Uh, yeah. I, I can't wait to scream. This is your wrecking ball live. <laughs> oh, absolutely. God, I can't wait for live music to come back. Scott. Oh man. Uh, but yeah, no, I love this song in particular, but this album as a whole, what a great surprise. I didn't know what to expect when Jamie was teasing that. I certainly was not expecting this. All right, and the last song that we have is called Haircut by TD, and I believe it's pronounced Maya Folek. I could be wrong, um, but they've worked together previously, and PD is somebody that I fell in love with after like laughing at their album art because PD does have this kind of unassuming, almost Muppet-like quality <laughs> to his appearance, and... Uh, Matt from Super American kept posting uh, PD songs on his Instagram story. So I finally, after seeing the EP cover for maybe the fifth time, was like, you know what? I respect Matt. I love everything Matt's done. I'm going to give this a shot and see what it's all about. The EP that came out last year, uh, I believe it's called Don't Tell the Boys, is like this similar to Penelope Scott. Like there's a, a real bedroom quality to it where it's like you can tell he works on it and he pours like everything he has into it, but the, it's not too overproduced. Uh, this song in particular, though, they came out right around the time I lit literally the same week that I walked into therapy and was telling my therapist, I was like, I think that I want to cut all my hair off just so I know that I have control over something going on. <laughs> and then, like, that's literally a lyric in the first verse. And I was like, oh, sick. I love when music just somehow manages to line up completely with where I'm at. And it's like beautiful, but devastating once you get past how beautiful their voices are together yeah i feel like the the riff is almost like a little bit dissonant and i think that really kind of like brings out the, those qualities you're talking about in their voices and i don't know it kind of reminds me of it feels like nostalgic in a way and kind of like i don't know like a sunny car ride on a fall day or something like where yeah, where it's like sure. cool outside but then you feel the warmth of the sun <laughs> Yeah, PD, it's interesting. Everything he does to me feels like both brand new, but also like it could have come out 10, 15 years ago and it would have done, it would have been just as good. Like it would have fit in just as well. Um, I don't know. This guy's a genius and I cannot wait to, for a full length album from this guy. Yeah. And uh, I do have to just give a quick shout out to the line I make jokes when I've been feeling uncomfortable. Am I all right? I really think I'm in trouble. Yeah. It's, and the way that, Maya's voice sounds on it is just like I don't know how how anybody can pack that much emotion into a line that is both like it's devastating but it's like also funny like I just don't know how her her delivery is impeccable just impeccable and then I guess I do just have a couple random pieces of music news to bring up which is one pink shift is teasing something for Friday 
and I'm incredibly stoked. I love the artwork that they're using to tease it. Like teasing stuff is so cheesy for bands sometimes, but they, it feels like they're doing it right. And it feels like they're something that we should be excited for. <laughs> I, I did notice that the, the artwork they, they shared has on thin ice written on it. And I'm wondering if like, there's like a graphic novel or something coming out. Yeah, I when I when they posted the first teaser, I literally retweeted it and I was like, this made me realize how much I would love if any band that I love made a comic book. <laughs> yeah. I think that um Think Shift is the one to do it. Also, Jiraiya. Yeah, I think that would be a perfect, like the yes. perfect just to release a graphic novel and then to write the whole soundtrack and just have that be like the first proper full length from them would be so incredible. Yeah, I, I literally thought about tweeting that at him, but I feel like he he has so much going on. He probably doesn't need <laughs> yeah, <laughs> need those that's extra. Fair. That's fair. You don't want to put this random hype on him for no reason. And then the other little tidbit of music news that caught my eye recently is that Casey from The Wonder Years basically confirmed they're in the studio with a little post that he did on his Instagram the other day. And I'm insanely stoked for that, of course. <laughs> and also recent guest of the pod so <laughs> i'm wondering uh if it's gonna be like uh the, the singles they released that had the the suburbia energy or not yeah well so when i talked to him a couple weeks ago for the podcast he said that they really enjoyed kind of revisiting that sound and he made it sound like it's going to at least somewhat inform the music going forward so that's should be interesting yeah, absolutely. They're kind of a band that can do anything, and I love it. So, <laughs> yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, everything they do is just perfect. Well, all right. The first episode of What's the Buzz may have just wrapped, but this episode of Flying the Call is far from over. I know you're itching to get to it, so let's keep this train rolling right along and get into my interview with Jesse Cannon. I wanted to start with a list of your jobs so people get an idea of just how busy you really are. I know I'd probably miss some, so I was wondering, could you give the the quick rundown of your current projects? (laughs) Okay. I am still a producer, mixer, and mastering engineer on lots of punk and emo and other records. I... My day job is I work at the news organization, The Daily Beast, where I produce couple of popular podcasts there as well as i produce some podcasts like killed by desk which is a podcast about musicians jobs after they've moved on from music and a few others freelance i do the youtube channel use formation where i teach musicians how to go from zero to ten thousand fans which correlates to my two books which is get more fans and processing creativity I think that's everything I do. <laughs> oh, I run a live streaming studio in Times Square too, but uh, that's not as busy with uh, you know everybody working from home. For sure. Yeah, and I'm just off the bat, I'm curious, how has um, COVID like affected your production work? So if you think of it this way, I would probably produce in recent years at least 10 to 20 records a year which is a lot less than I used to, but I try to concentrate more on mixing and mastering now. I think I was in the studio nine days over the summer. I produced two records last year, so uh, it slowed down a lot. (laughs) Uh, Mostly because uh, through most of the pandemic, I lived with someone who was immune compromised, so I really could not be around people and risk hurting her so but uh yeah i'm really looking forward to i'm going to the studio with a couple of great bands because i am vaccinated and clear in a few weeks nice yeah connecticut just today moved up the time i'll be eligible from the start of may to the start of april so i'm like yes. oh love that love that yes. you get to turn into an alien and grow scales faster <laughs> something that you said in one of your first youtube videos uh when you started the channel was that it was kind of part of a way to commit to growth and that you're feeling kind of stagnant in your career and i'm curious yes. you know a year and a quarter later and as of today officially you passed 10,000 subscribers yes. uh like just how to, do you feel now just about- just an hour or two ago, I crossed it. That's fits. Yeah, that exactly is it. Um, you know, there's this like funny thing that I think anybody who's got a passion gets to where we're doing things, we get good at them, 
but then sometimes like we're not making the progress we feel we could. And that's because we're actually like, we've gotten good at something, but we don't push outside the boundary. So I realized I was talking to about the same three to 5,000 people when I was doing musician podcasts. And there is a thing that, you know, YouTube as an audience, podcasts as an audience, TikTok, Instagram, any medium, uh, Clubhouse now. I just did a like thousand person clubhouse on Sunday that I hosted and like, you know, it was all people who don't listen to the politics podcast I work on. And what I learned was you got to go to different mediums and then you have to do what people like on the medium. And man, have I been rewarded because it's crazy. Like I don't see people on my YouTube who are like, Oh, I know you from all those, hundreds of podcasts I do. I mean, I get it once in a while, but most of the time it's people who've never heard of me and it's a whole new audience. And like a lot of what I wanted to do is start speaking to different people because I just spent too many years kind of, you know, talking to the punk community you and I come from. Um, Whereas now like, man, like half the people I consult with are like making R and B or weird goth music and just all sorts of things that like, I weren't people I was talking to. You mentioned kind of, uh, working to the medium. And I know like you've referred to yourself as a YouTube addict yourself. I'm curious, like how, how that kind of like that love of the medium plays into how, uh, you approach the work. Well, you know, the nice thing is, is that when I get out of work each night, like what I want to be doing, like, wow, was that, oh God, the days go by so <laughs> fast. Uh, two nights ago, all I wanted to do was finish work because I just wanted to watch a couple of YouTubes. And, you know, I'm just always taking notes, thinking about how I can be better at the medium. But it really is, too, like such an interesting thing. Like, I just had this video that's still going viral. It's getting like 7,000 views a day, which is like... I would not, my best video before this would not get 7,000 views in a month. Uh, and so it's funny because you have some people who are like, oh my God, I love it. The content comes so fast. And then some people are like, dude, you talk way too fucking fast. Oh, come on. I do 1.5 speed. No problem. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's good. That's impressive. All these people are saying they do 75. But the thing you learn is like, it's just like, all we're ever doing is getting better at communicating things. And it's even the same thing. Like, you know, it's especially, so for the listener at the daily beast, I produced this podcast called the new abnormal where I'm both a talking head and a producer. And it's the fourth biggest political podcast in America. Uh, we're regularly in the top 200 out of all 1 million, 100,000 podcasts. So you get a complaint box that is just ridiculous. Like, in any given week, you will see just the most insane complaints. My favorite ones are the ones too that are like Jesse's Star Trek joke is out was out of line. I'm like, definitely didn't make a Star Trek joke. No, nothing about Star Trek. Don't know which podcast you were listening to, but learning what to get better at and what to take offense to and what to say these people are crazy is just so much of the game. And um I really have been on this thing of uh, I write down the complaint box on everything and try to make patterns and try to really look it in the eye. I don't walk away from it. I take all the feedback in and really try to do it. Now, when somebody tells me I have a dumb voice that sounds like an annoying white guy, I go, well, they haven't made voice transplants yet, but I really try to take it in. And I think I've made a lot of the things I create way better by listening to the people when they tell me something that I think can be improved compared to something that I really love about the podcast. You mentioned before kind of like the new audience that the YouTube channel has brought you to. Um, and I think at one point you even kind of said you were kind of burnt out on like the the rock guitar music a little bit. How has that kind of like shift in the type of music that you're working with to some extent, um, how has that like affected your enjoyment of the work? Yeah. I mean, th- there's an interesting thing is that like, you know, like my favorite record right now is uh Breakins's punk two. And I had listened to that record a little, um, cause people were like, Oh, you would like this. And I was like, ah, it didn't hit me. 
But then my fans would be like, dude, if you like all this stuff, how do you not like break it? He's the shit. He's the shit. So then I give it another try. And now I'm like, oh my God, like this is the artist I'm most obsessed with in 2021. All I do is tell people about them, listen to it. And like, it's nice finding a new community because it's, you know, punk's been my community forever, but like, I just don't listen to as much punk as I listen to like queer 18 year olds who make hyper pop weirdness as my thing now. And that's what excites me. And uh, a lot of when I've been unhappy in life has been when I can't find my people. And the coolest thing is when you're constantly putting things out in the world, it's so much easier to find your people. Like I make so many friends and get to know so many people that I have things in common with that I can discuss because I'm out there discussing them every day and they have conversations. And if you like the conversation with the person, then you just keep talking to them more. And if you're like, wow, this person's being really annoying and telling me my voice sounds stupid. Well, I don't need to talk to you again. You mentioned the break-ins album, which I actually listened to for the first time today. Um, and the dynamics are something that like really stood out to me. Like, I feel like the big moments are so huge. Uh, but what is it uh, about that that is like really hitting the buttons for you? You know, I joke all day that I'm like this really unemotional person. Like we, particularly like during the election, you know, uh, one of the hosts of the podcast is a guy who was involved with the Lincoln Project, who was obviously the most contentious people to Trump, which means Trump supporters were sending me death threats, getting my address, which I don't even know how they did. And we'd have constant things of high security leaks and things like that. And I'd never be stressed at all. I'd just be like, oh, this is just what you do each day. And anything that happens, you just go on and I'm basically in the same good mood every day. And then I put that record on and I'm like, Whoa, there's, there's problems inside me emotionally because how much I feel and like break down crying or like, I'm just like, Holy shit. I'm so emotionally overwhelmed. I'm like, well, there's some layer of the onion. We're not peeling buddy. Cause, uh, whew, there's something going on here. So, uh, Got to think about maybe talking to a shrink at some point and figuring that out. Cause uh, yeah, it's just, it's really emotionally affecting music and that's what I'm searching for. And it's like, and you know, unfortunately, you know, my, my love for punk will never go away, but I did not find a lot of records that weren't really iterative. And I, and I've been through punk enough to know that sometimes the genre leaves me for a little while, just as even pop leaves me for a little while. Uh, and I'm not connecting with as many punk bands as I normally did. And just finding that record, I mean, it does feel like punk too to me. Out of guitar, like punk driven music, what have been the one or two acts that have kind of like caught your eye lately? Okay. Now we have to hit the Spotify because I'm the worst person at ever remembering what I'm listening to. Uh, what am I listening to? Okay. So it's going to be a little bit of a cop-out because we're not going to call this the most punk-sounding record, even if they came from punk, which I love the latest 100th record. I listen to that record constantly. I Oddly enough, and it kind of doesn't count because I like work with them a little doing uh, some mastering, but I, I love Bill Murray. I think he has such an innovative eye on music and just really does such interesting things. Uh, and then I'm going to really embarrass myself. An MGK record kind of fucks. <laughs> yeah, I give it. I give it a few listens. I give it a few listens. <laughs> it, it's 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 you know, there's just this thing. It's like I love pop music, and you know, there's some real cringe moments on it. But like when it's working, it really, really works well. And I just man, uh, there's sometimes I when I want the mindless head bop, that that is kind of my jam. Um. The other guitar record I listen to a lot. I listen to that B Badu B record a lot. I think she's really killing it song wise. And I guess it's only a little, it's in that same realm breakings is in as I really like uh glaive and Alden where they have like a little bit of the emo thing. And then they have a bunch of the hyper pop thing. 
And one of the things that I've been hearing you saying for like literally years is that Skrillex was the new Nirvana. And I feel <laughs> yes. like that hits a little bit closer to home each time I hear like dubstep in a Target commercial. <laughs> <laughs> um, but more recently started saying like Brockhampton is the new Nirvana, which is interesting to me in that you can't say Brockhampton is the new Skrillex because people don't even realize that Skrillex yes. was the new Nirvana. So I'm curious to hear more about like your thoughts on both those bands and also like kind of what it means that we're on to the next big thing when people sure. haven't re- even realized the last one. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's the big product of the thing that I think we're all always talking about, which is now there's such a vast musical landscape of things that everybody can drill down on what they're interested in musically to such a degree. That's kind of insane that we could just, really easily find the emotions of music that we want to find and then be so focused that we don't even see other things happening. But what I mean when I say Skrillex was the new Nirvana is if we think about what Nirvana did was um, it's what, uh, what historians call a foreturning where everything that happened before. So um, in politics, which is easy for people to understand a foreturning we've had two of them in most of of anybody who's listings lifetime, which is nine 11 and this pandemic, meaning that things great really realign and nothing will ever be the same since. And so what I think Skrillex did was one uh, brought on a volume to music. Like we could always say there was loudness wars, but now we had somebody who was doing volume and intensity at a level in music that everybody then wanted to match. Now, secondly, there was just dubstep sounds and he really brought that into the mainstream you know um one of the most interesting things i think of him too that people don't often realize is when we talk about how everything's become playlist and singles skrillex had the most streamed record of i'm going to say it's 2012 but i may need a fact check might have been 2011 and it was only an ep not an lp so he had never made an lp at that point so he becomes the first thing where albums start to not be necessary to make a artist fully relevant. And that is just a absolute huge change in music that I think was a good amount of how this snowball has gotten so big of that, you know, singles or everything. But so he changes everything. But then what Brock Hampton does uh, that I think a lot of people don't realize is this meeting on message boards and online community, and then being like a loosely knit art collective is going to be one of the most, um, you know, just consequential changes. And yes, we could all say like, okay, sure. You know, there was those things in the past, there was collaborative things, but like they brought this to the mainstream. This is a band with a number one record that is basically an art project where everyone involved in it is known as a member. And there's going to be so much of this as they influence the world of kids who grew up on that and saw that idea, the amorphous uh, nature of that will be that like, you're going to see that people saw that, like, this is how you include it. And some of the reason you have to do that is because the profits and music have been not so much in a lot of ways that if you're not compensating everybody and you, you, what's even funnier is when you do even see since branding is such a big thing in music, a lot of these creative directors have a piece of the artists they work with for the time they're, they're there now, which I didn't know until a month ago when I was talking to a lawyer who does contracts and you're just going to see that these creative teams become more and more a part of the artist even if for branding sake, the artist is the face, but I think Brockhampton shows the, the collective thing and bringing people up in that. And, you know, they were definitely influenced by ASAP and things like that, but they showed a model that I think people will really latch onto for a long time. One of the things you mentioned in there was kind of like the shift from the album to being the main, you know, body of work to the singles. And, you know, that's kind of one of the core tenants in the YouTube zero to 10,000 fans is kind of like the constant sustained promotion every six weeks, a new single. I'm curious how that kind of, how have you seen that affect the creative process for musicians and also kind of the way that 
you connect with music. I'm, I'm very much an album person. So like sometimes it's a little bit hard for me to like wrap my head around the fact that I have to wait to, you know, get this body to really dig into. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and truthfully, you know, it's like a funny thing of like, I don't think anyone, maybe not anyone, but most people I think still love to get a album and a solid work of things. But the fact of the matter is now is that like, our attention spans now kind of demand that in a different way, especially as we're getting to know an artist. Now, one of the greatest benefits I think of this is musicians. While I wrote a whole book on that, they should really not be paying attention to what their fans think. And they should just be looking inside themselves. Musicians do want feedback. And a lot of people really kind of need the feedback for their extroversion, especially people who seek attention as musicians do and singles allow them to get these bursts of feedback and this constant thing that you know we all talk about that everybody's getting addicted to on social media but i think in a somewhat healthy way i don't think that they should ever be catering their music to the feedback of the fans but at least seeing growth like you know we talk about mental health among musicians you know one of the craziest things I've even learned with like depression over the years, I think it was Johan Hari's book, Lost Connections, is that one of the ways you keep yourself from being depressed is incremental progress on things. Is that when you feel stagnant or you feel like things are going downhill, that's depression. Whereas putting out a single and consistently doing this all the time and getting good reactions and seeing things build that helps your mental health. And, you know, I, I, as we come to a close of this pandemic, I, when I look back at where I was a year ago, I was fearing for so many of my musician friends with them being home and having to acclimate. And, you know, I lost one of my dear friends during this time, but I thought it was going to be a lot more. And, I just, you know, if we want to get more into the single versus album as the listener, I think albums are very much here to stay because people need to hear a body of work, but I like that we can take them in. I, if I'm being honest, when I know the 1975, a group that it means the world to me is putting out LP, do I listen to the singles as they go? Absolutely. Do I try to ration them a little bit so I can enjoy the album as a whole? I sure do. One of the common things that, you know, comes up a lot in your videos too is, you know, the fact that you'd be telling people uh, who Brockhampton are, who Billie Eilish are at the point where they already had, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of plays racked up. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm curious, like, what do you think that says about like the music industry in general and kind of like, how do you keep your finger on the pulse? <laughs> You know, what's so crazy is like, I don't think anybody has their finger on the pulse anymore because it's so like, there's this moment I love to to talk about uh, that I had with um, my friend, Zach Cirillo is, um, and I want to get her name right. Uh, Okay. So he sends me this record to master for vinyl and I'm like, all right, this needs a pretty heavy hand. Like I sent it back to him. I'm like, all right, I did my thing. And he's like, whoa, this sounds great, but it might freak people out because this does not sound like the record and people are used to it. And I'm like, God, I hate when bands think people are used to it. It's like you have a thousand fans. We're supposed to get you hundreds of thousand fans. So the artist Penelope Scott presently has uh, 2.4 million monthly listeners on Spotify. I had never heard of her. I love this record. Like uh, Public Void is what it's called. It is just an absolutely original work. But, you know, you just, there. it is impossible to keep up with monumentally big artists. And then when we think about it, it's just 2.4 million you know, most of the bands you and I love in our scene don't have 200,000 monthly listeners. And we're like, hell yeah, they got a huge buzz. (laughs) Everything is so lopsided and so insular. And especially now, you know, I had a really good talk with a friend uh, this weekend that because we get so much from playlists and don't have to rely on friends as much anymore. And we're not always talking about what we're listening to as much anymore. I don't remember to text every time I fall in love with a song 
or put it on my Instagram like I normally do. And so we're having really insular moments now with music, which is it's can have some benefits, but I also I'm weary of how that changes music discovery and how much, you know, uh, I'm always skeptical of giving any more power to Spotify. And I think kind of something that goes slightly along with that is uh, the idea of uh, setting unrealistically high goals for yourself, which I know is something that you did for the YouTube channel when you started that. And I feel like, you know, talking about that kind of Spotify disparity is kind of something that plays into that and would make it, you know, maybe harder for a band to set either a realistic or an unrealistic goal to like kind of know where, what marks they should be hitting. So can you talk a little bit about kind of like, you know, the mindset behind that setting of goals? Yeah. I mean, it's interesting what I actually think musicians goals should be. You can't control the outcome of how much people listen to your song, but you can control the outcome of the work you do and how much effort you put into having them hear you. So what I often tell the musicians to do, uh, particularly like I do a lot of consulting calls where I coach people uh, and give them a plan is like the goal should be uninterrupted 90 days of three hours of work a day. And at minimum, one of those being working on business because a lot of people get addicted to the creating and then some people aren't so good with the creating and business. Like, you know, I say like, you really got to find a balance there and do the thing. But what the goal to me should really be is like one identifying what works and what exploration is important. So a good example is, is like I, one of the things I tell musicians all the time is the difference between you and your favorite bands is your favorite bands have just figured out how to tell people what is exciting about them or their manager has or their music in general just gets people excited. It's sometimes both A and B, but one of those has to be happening. And that is often the difference. So if you haven't figured out how to do that, sitting down in front of a piece of paper and figuring out how you do that for numerous nights, some of the best time you can spend. Some of the other best time you can spend is literally just scouring through Bandcamp and SoundCloud and trying to find other groups who are similar to you that you can reach out to and start to build a community with. The community is like one of the biggest things when I was at Atlantic Electro Records, the number one thing I'd see constantly is that, you know, nearly everybody who got signed to that major label was signed because of someone they knew brought them to the attention of somebody who had power to make big things happen for them. And that is often that they knew another big artist and that artist saw how talented they were and they brought them on over to their manager to their A&R. And in our world of punk, you know, that's often taking a band on tour. That's often, you know, working with them on a record or bringing them to the management. And like, that is the game and people not taking the time to find where your community is and find the people you really vibe with. It's a huge thing. As far as um, like your to your approach of setting goals, how does it look like for something like the new abnormal or kid by desk where it's like not necessarily like your vision that you're seeking to achieve? Yes. Yeah. So that's a totally different story. So it's like if we talk about the new abnormal, I have an imperative by my boss at this corporation that is owned by Match.com to do certain numbers to make it profitable to give me a paycheck that I am paid for because people want to fuck each other on the internet. Um, no, I'm actually all paid for by the podcast, but I do like to joke about that. Um, anyway, so if you think it this way, we have a numbers mandate. So then you have to identify how do you get to those numbers and reverse engineer it. So one of the most interesting things I learned about podcasts is lots of people think podcasts grow certain ways that they don't grow. Facebook ads, as many people know, I hate them for promoting your music. The only thing less effective uh, than promoting music is promoting podcasts and Facebook ads. Uh, It is literally like a laughable metric. And I've talked to one of the leaders 
of one of the biggest podcast networks who literally told me that they burned $750,000 to get just about nothing buying Facebook ads for their podcasts. Now, a lot of starving families could have had that money. Anyway, so what does move the needle? Great guess. Great conversations that people want to share and controversy. So, yeah, I can admit this. Fuck it. <laughs> so it, here, here's a good example. Is Since my podcast was mostly, if we wanted to boil it down to a thing, was let's dunk on the orange man and make him look bad. Um, so let's say we had a certain famous guest on who called the orange man a very mean thing and perhaps that he should be jailed. I might email that to a lot of right-wing bloggers so that they make sure they see it so that then they post about it and then our numbers go up. Might have done that a few times. Um, but then, you know, if for the people out there listening, you may say, okay, well, I don't have Orange Man bad, you know. I mean, none of us do really. Now he's in Mar- at Mar-a-Lago. Having interesting conversations and finding everywhere you can do it. Like with my YouTube videos, if I talk about a certain subject before I've ever put that video out or while I'm waiting for my editor to send it back to me, I am looking for everywhere I can put that video, whether it's subreddits, Facebook groups, etc., and throwing it all on a spreadsheet while I'm watching TV at night and trying to find where is the community for that video. You're obviously very passionate about like the medium of podcasting. And I'm curious what you think, you know, what is it that makes it such an effective uh, storytelling medium? Well, the, you know, it's like the funniest thing. I think people have really, really learned the habit of podcasting, which I think is like one of the most underestimated things. Cause what a lot of people I talk to about podcasts don't understand is that podcasts are just habits we've grown into as you go, Hey, you know, here's a good example. I set my alarm for 9am. If I wake up at seven 30, I'm often going to hit play on Rachel Maddow. I usually will listen to Rachel Maddow at some point in the day, but that's my go-to of like what to do in the morning because it's what I do. I've been listening to Rachel Maddow's podcast since 2004. I've barely missed an episode in the last 10 years and you get in these habits. Now, not everybody's as psychotic as me with these, but podcasts are in general habits and it's getting people to remember and crave what the habit and what you bring to that habit is. So I have a podcast that just came out called fever dreams. Fever dreams is all about QAnon and the psychotic right wing. And so like a lot of like what we think about is like this podcast really at the end of the day needs to be that when somebody brings up the water cooler or the dinner party or on the zoom chat or in the Slack that when they're like queuing on there, yo, did you hear this story? That's basically what we're providing. So what you think about is the reverse engineer of, you know, really what gets you there in habit. And then you make that content for people. So they create that habit. And that's really tough for some subjects. I particularly would not want to make that around certain things, particularly like sports is like, seems to be one of the most flooded ones with that. And it's not easy. Whenever I have discussions with people where I coach them on that, I'm like, yeah, I mean, you know, there's not a lot more to say than what the news is a lot of the time if you don't have a reporter thing where you go inside, but yeah, I think, you know, podcasts with stories, it's what you crave. I crave certain things, you know, I should not admit this, but I, you know, if I'm, it's very rare. I'm not in a good mood. If I need to get myself out of a bad mood, I'm going right to come town because as fucking stupid as it is, it will make me laugh like a fucking idiot every time. And, you know, you can't help what you like, even if they're problematic as fuck. You mentioned, you know, listening to podcasts since like 2004. How did you kind of like get into it both, you know, on the listening side and the the creation side? Uh, so I had a, a cable news 
addiction for a while when George W. Bush was the bad man. And I then had my commute to work was about an hour and a half each way. And because I produced records, I really didn't want to listen to music because it would wear my ears down even more. So I listened to tons of audiobooks, but then that got boring. And I was like, oh, well, I keep hearing about these podcast things. And I hear this Rogan guy and this Adam Carolla guy got one. And I didn't like those. <laughs> um, but I found the, all the Air America ones, which is a defunct left-wing radio network. And uh, I listened to tons of those. And literally, like back then, it'd be hard to find like a listenable podcast. Like the biggest problem was that they were all so bad. And like normally people are like, oh, well, you know, production's like, no, no, no. It doesn't matter about production. Most of the people who just did podcasts were insufferable. So it was really a bad time out there. So not like now where like, I think most of us have a list that we're never going to get through. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> so yet again, coming back to Zach Cirillo, we had always been talking about how we, both listen to the podcast. We'd be sending podcasts back and forth. And he's like, do you want to do one of these? And I'm like, wow, that's actually a good idea. Like we could kind of have a good time doing this. And uh, I was like, yeah, I know how to edit audio. I'm good at that stuff. I've done a lot of audio books and yeah. And then we did it and it was like, you know, we were on the cover of the music page pretty instantly. And we were pretty early to it. But yeah, and then when Zach left, I just kept going. I started another one. And then my professional career in podcasts, meaning when people started to hire me, our studio started getting booked by a lot of them. And I did a couple political podcasts and some mommy blogger podcasts. And then Atlantic Electra uh, reached out to me to start doing production for their podcasts. And I started doing 99% of those, maybe 90% of them. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was a great experience. And then I had the crazy thing of that. They kind of shut that down when COVID left and it was right as the daily beast was looking for somebody. And hilariously uh, there is three people on staff at the daily beast who I've produced. So uh, that worked out well. For sure. For sure. <laughs> and I mean, I imagine you're coming up pretty close to the, uh, ninth editions of, uh, get more fans. What's the store for the newest? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. This is, I think one of the most interesting things. So for people who don't know the full details, this is a book about how you build a fan base and how basically like the lay of the land of DIY promotion. And it's, you know, my channel focuses on things that change fast and less evergreen ideas. This is much more like, here's what's happening with, and like the lay of the land and here's what your options are. Every year I usually have to update a hundred to 200 pages of just changing little details and updating little things. Cause things change the fast. Never has it changed less than this year. <laughs> and everybody's like, wow, no, but the music business changed. I'm like, but you know what didn't really change is like the fundamentals of promotion. We just started doing different things. Not a lot of new tools came out. <laughs> you know, playlisting, that was the same thing last year. It was, playlists spent a lot. It's really it was just live streams is what really really changed in the game but other than that the game really stayed the same and i know everybody's like everything's different it's like mm. on a macro level i don't think really i think less changed than ever and particularly what is also interesting is all the little startups around music less of them happened in this year than ever before i am on every press release list for when a music startup happens much to my annoyance <laughs> um, and never did less start this year or I should I say never did less start that that got any ground a lot of them started around things with live streams and things like that but none of them really got ground they, everybody just did the live streams without new startups they did it with classic tools 
And I'm curious, like, what would you say is kind of like the biggest lesson that you've learned and kind of the, the way you've had to pivot in the last year? You know, when I was a, mostly a record producer, it was always very funny because people in punk and emo just knew me as like, you know, oh yeah, he's that guy. He does the emo thing, but he also does leftover crack. But no one knew that I also in New York was like a well-known producer in like garage rock. And I did a lot of different things and different genres all the time, particularly this year, what's been really nice about diversifying my income and my interests is I thought it might make it so I miss more things. And, but really like what I've kind of found is that my radar is now so vast that I can bring in so many things from what I see in the podcast world into the YouTube world. And then what I see in the production world and the music world often ends up in my political podcast too. And diversifying, you need to keep, you know, diversity for diversity's sake doesn't work, but I've been really, really psyched on a vastness of knowledge about a lot of things has made everything run a little bit smoother for me. And what's also been nice is uh, I can, it's nice being able to give people work during this. And I've been able to give a lot of people work because being diverse means I don't have to say yes to every single thing. And I think I can recommend somebody who would do a better job or hand it off to an assistant who does really good work. And what, what's been something that you wouldn't have expected to like translate over from one to the other podcasting to music or vice versa? So, you know, it's like, <laughs> I, I, I guess here, here's like a very funny thing is that like, so pop music demands such exactness in the way you speak and me being able to get people to speak really, really exactly on voiceovers and things like that, that really helps a lot. And then the other funny thing is when you're involved in punk hardcore, you have so many edge lords who have the craziest take possible of everything that happens. So whenever we need like a really alarming out there take, I just have a whole list of all my insane political friends from punk rock who I could just scroll through their Twitter. Like, Oh wow. They're saying that, huh? Well, we got, we got an outlier here. here here's what we can say. One of the things that you kind of have said frequently is that if you had it your way, there would kind of never be ballads on a punk record. Like you, yes, you yes. want an album that is consistent in its tone. And one of the things that I've noticed kind of more recently is kind of the the breakdown of genre leading to like these crazy albums that have like this tone that's kind of all over the place. And I'm curious kind of your take on that. Yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting thing because like people are like, will talk to me about how I say that. And they're like, but your fucking favorite band's 1975, you fucking asshole, da, da, da. There are two 60 million genres on that. I'm like, I didn't say it's necessary. But I often emotionally identify way more with that thing. But I think the other thing that's happened is that my generation, you know, I tell the story about some 41 a lot, that a lot of people don't realize that you were allowed to like hip hop. You were allowed to like punk, but don't mix the two together. You know, oil and water. Do not make that happen. And then some 41 had the intelligence to make that fat lip video. And what did they do? The video is all punk kids enjoying a rap song that has punk in it or punk rap crossover, whatever we want to call it. So that it was inception to their brain that this was acceptable. Clearly it's on MTV all day. Look at these kids enjoying it. Genre was so strict for me growing up. And I think genre is just so fluid. You know, a lot of people don't, take into account that, you know, also that like pitchfork for literally decades would not allow any discussion whatsoever of emo or even pop music. Now pitchfork posts about Taylor Swift more than they do one Oh tricks point never. And I think that all this opening up has just made people go, I'm just going to make what I like to make. 
and that's me and I don't need to do it. And a lot of people are really good at doing that because music is not always about mastering a genre. It's often about who it, you know, follows an emotion and expresses it well. And I see tons of people expressing emotions really well and powerfully across a lot of genres. And that's fucking cool. I, I will say not a lot of artists where I love all the places they explore, but a good amount of artists where I like one or two things. And one thing that I've been super sucked down the rabbit hole of over the last, like a little bit over a year, I guess, is jam bands. And, okay. Uh, <laughs> well, so I, I'm like a big, like vinyl nerd, you know, mm-hmm. knowing the crazy pressing information, all that stuff. So like the archival uh, aspect of the fan base is something that really has always appealed to me. And I've been like super interested in, and I don't know. I heard someone compare fish to jazz. And for some reason, the next time I checked them out, it clicked. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I, I, I don't disagree at all. <laughs> and I'm just curious, kind of like your thoughts on that kind of sector of, of music. So I'm oddly enough, a like uh, songs only guy. I really don't like improvisation. I like, controlled scripted well thought out things um and i've always been this like when i was in bands when i was young like if somebody said let's jam on it i'm like "Ah, i'd rather quit um i want to write things and bring them to the table um jam bands have always and there's some exceptions like i really enjoyed uh dr dog for example um but Jam bands, lack of structure and lack of, you know, it's the same reason. Like I didn't like being in a band and I became a record producer. It's like, I like taking a rock and whittling it and finding every bit of shape it should have by experimenting. And then if I have to throw that rock away and then look again at the rock and reconstruct the thing I did, knowing the flaws, just jamming and following it is, uh, I'm such a, I like to refine, refine, refine that following my spur of the moment emotion when I can take 10 spur of the moment emotions and then pick the best things mm-hmm. is so much more interesting to me. Gotcha. <laughs> and I'm curious, how, how close are we to getting a real earnest clip of Incel Hype Beast? <laughs> you, 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 okay, you want to you hear something funny? There is an Incel Hype Beast song almost in the can. Um, my girlfriend who her real name is Hannah Silk Champagne, um, was born to be a hyper pop singer, obviously, with that name. <laughs> so I'm making her sing a cover song where we've changed the lyrics. And, uh, you know, now that you ask this, I might push her to do this uh, tomorrow night. I might be like, <laughs> you know, tomorrow, tomorrow night is, is the night that we, we make uh, this cover of Billy Idol's Dancing With Myself entitled Beer Pong With Myself. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> but but, but for, for the audience, so they know, the Incel Hype Beast is my joke band I use on my YouTube channel where I really just get to express all the dumb song rep titles that I come up with. <laughs> really, I only have it because I like making bad Fallout Boy-esque song titles. <laughs> uh, and then I always wrap up the same way, which is by asking for a piece of advice or something you've been thinking about, whether it's on music or life, uh, just you know whatever you'd like to share. I feel like we've hit hit on so much already. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Here's an interesting one. Uh, I had a lot of trouble dealing with loss in my life. A lot of the time when um, I'd lose a friend and still do every single year of my life to either suicide or heroin, um, which is a horrible, horrible thing and product of being around music a lot of the time. But um, the thing I've learned the most about if you're hanging on to things and kind of right in line with the mental health and depression thing of making progress is what really helps with closure is trying to do things that right the wrongs you feel. If you're being driven crazy about what you could have done in a situation, work on doing uh something to prevent that in somebody else's life and work on 
being there and trying to do something good for somebody in the future and pay things forward and try to put a different energy into the world. It's astounding how much better it makes you feel. And I, uh, unfortunately, one of my best friends lost someone this week and uh, watching her do that and seeing how much better it makes her feel during this. It really is a, a, a big practice that I don't think gets discussed enough that um, you can exert control on future situations. You can't exert control in the past and it helps the world be a better place. Alas, another episode of Fly on the Call has come to an end. I hope you enjoyed the first installment of What's the Buzz with Joel Funk, and please be sure to check out the playlist of songs discussed, which is linked to the show notes. I'm so stoked to have an excuse to talk to Joel on the regular and to help bring even more amazing music to new ears. Feel free to hit us up with any suggestions for the music or format. And thank you so much to Jesse Cannon for taking the time to talk. All of his work is worth your time, but I've been especially inspired lately by his YouTube channel, Museformation. So if you're feeling overwhelmed with where to start, I highly suggest checking out a few of his videos. I'll be back next week with another two great interviews, so be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, or put a reminder on your phone for Tuesday and Thursday. Catch Joel and I back here with more tunes two weeks from today. Don't forget to enter the 500 Twitter follower and share your support for Intransitive. I will be announcing the winners on April 14th, and entries must be received by April 13th at 11.59pm Eastern. It's easy to enter, and everyone's a winner. Flying the Call is brought to you by Sound Talent Media. A special thank you as always to The Alternative for helping to promote the show, Kaylin West of Tiny Stills for the theme song, and Michaela Jane for the artwork. You can keep up to date by subscribing to the podcast and following the show on Twitter and Instagram at Pod. Feel free to email any questions, comments, or other feedback to me at flyonthecallpod at gmail.com. Protect trans youth. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of The Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday.